Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. And this week I'm joined by Jennifer Burns, Associate Professor of History and Research Fellow at the Hoover Institute in Stanford. Jennifer's expertise is intellectual, political, and cultural history with a particular interest in conservative politics, free market economics, religion, and the history of capitalism. And in this episode, we talk about her work on Ayn Rand, which was the culmination of her PhD and the subsequent book that she released called Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. And Professor Burns takes us through her work and her readings of Ayn Rand and gives us the background to Ayn Rand's thinking, having come from communist Russia at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution and emigrating to the United States and converting her ideas, which was supportive of capitalism. And later on, her philosophical thinking had reached a point where she was able to express it and give it a title known as objectivism. And Ayn Rand had communicated her philosophical thinking through a couple of novels that some of you would be very familiar with called The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged and also one that you may not be aware of known as We the Living which Professor Burns has recommended in this episode. Jennifer is able to explore a deeper knowledge of Ayn Rand's work and her own thinking over those decades after being given access to private papers and the original unedited versions of Rand's journals and Jennifer's own assessment or reassessment of this key cultural figure allows her to examine her life and her ideas and her impact on conservative political thought, especially in the United States. And not only is Ayn Rand a novelist with her fictional work in The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, but she became quite well known in the political and the economic circles, especially giving her influence on people like Alan Greenspan. And I guess her work had peaked at a point in the 60s and 70s where the hippie movement would have contested capitalism, which was the main focal point of Rand's philosophy, where she actually promoted capitalism and felt it was a a good model to follow and indeed a better alternative to communism. And I had a number of questions in this episode that I want that I put to Jennifer regarding Ayn Rand and her philosophical teaching. So Jennifer enlightens us with a lot of interesting facts about Ayn Rand and her work and her, her also her personal life and what type of person she was. And if you want to find out more about Ayn Rand having read her books, so I do recommend you check out Jennifer's own book, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right, which details her life from her childhood in Russia through to her rise from struggling Hollywood screenwriter to best-selling novelist, tracing the development of her objectivist philosophy and her relationship with her closest intellectual partners and the subsequent fallout from that relationship. Jennifer is not only a scholar on Ayn Rand, she's actually working on a book and actually coming to the final stages of publication on a book about the economist Milton Friedman. She has published many articles about the history of conservatism, libertarianism and liberalism in a number of academic and popular journals, including the Reviews in American History, the Journal of Cultural Economy and the New York Times. Jennifer has also featured on other media platforms, including television on CNBC and the John Stewart Show. 
and she has been involved in a number of initiatives, including serving as a faculty advisor to the Approaches to Capitalism workshop at Stanford Humanities Center. She co-founded the Bay Area Consortium for the History of Ideas in America and convening the Hoover Institution Archives, Library and the Archives Workshop on Political Economy. Jennifer also has a back catalogue of podcast episodes where she delivers her lectures on 20th century American economic history. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, check out her podcast on the history of the United States. So I hope you enjoyed this episode on Ayn Rand. And if you want to find out more regarding books, links and resources mentioned by Professor Burns, why not check out economicrockstar.com forward slash Jennifer Burns. And again, to support the podcast, as always, Please subscribe, even if you have a chance on Apple Podcasts, to give an honest rating and review. You can listen to it on Spotify and whatever your favorite platform is for podcasting. And again, if you want to support the show financially, check out patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar, which you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. So enjoy this episode with Jennifer Burns. When Atlas Shrugged came out, um, she thought this was her the greatest thing she'd ever done, and it got terrible, terrible reviews. And she was devastated. She wanted critical acclaim. She didn't get it. But it sold a lot of copies, and people started writing her letters. And she eventually picked herself up and said, well, I'm going to start teaching people about my philosophy. My philosophy is objectivism. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the Economic Rockstar podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Yeah, I'm so honored to have you on. And I actually found you by um, a discussion about your forthcoming book, Milton Friedman. And when I explored more and I was directed to your website, I was given this whole Aladdin's Cave of Ayn Rand and her work and your work to put that out to the to the masses in a way through your PhD that you worked on. And also in a book from 2009 called Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. That's right. That was my first book, and it grew out of my doctoral dissertation um, in uh, history at the University of California, Berkeley. And before we get on to that, you don't mind me asking, you, you've done uh, your background is in history and you gravitated towards economic history. And why did you go in that direction and how did you find Ayn Rand? So let's see. At this point in my career, I've become very interested in uh, it's a bit of economic history. and It's also history of economics. And I think that interest started from my interest in intellectual history more generally. And that's what I studied at Berkeley. And I didn't get a lot of exposure to economic thinking and economic ideas. The field at that point tended to be really focused on philosophers, um, progressive intellectuals, um, artists, uh, the postmodern critique, um, the debates over science and religion and how those fit together. So that was sort of what I was reading in classes and, and learning about as, as produced in the field. And I was very interested in political conservatism and the fact that I didn't read about it in school, yet it surrounded me and was clearly very influential in the nation. And I would look into these conservative thinkers and intellectuals and find that nobody really knew much about them. They hadn't been studied and they, they sort of weren't treated as important by people in the field, by the established curriculum. And it just seemed very curious to me what, you know, why this overlap. Um, and it was at a point in time where, you know, you had, if you had been the leader of some splinter 
um, you know, Trotskyist faction in New York in the 30s or 40s, you might have a couple books on you, right? This this sort of loving examination of the ins and outs of the radical left. And no one had done that for not so much even the mainstream right or the radical right. It just hadn't been done yet. I felt historically the sort of fulcrum of the world of ideas had really shifted from left to right. And uh, ideas, policy, politics were really being driven by innovation and change on the right rather than on the left, which, you know, may not have been true in the 1930s, but let's get to the late 1990s, 2000s. You know, things had changed, but the scholarship hadn't really caught up. So as I was looking around for a topic, um, I just started to bump into Ayn Rand everywhere. And it was one of these things is once you sort of look for it, you start to see it. You know, someone on the bus is reading Atlas Shrugged. You know, a friend who's not a big reader is tackling Atlas Shrugged. So-and-so is mentioning, you know, and, and I had some familiarity with Rand. I had read a few of her things, um, but I hadn't really gone in deep to her. And then it sort of occurred to me like, oh, you know, she's dead. So she was a historical figure. So I wonder what she was doing in American history. Like, who was she talking to? Who was she meeting? And at that point, I then encountered this famous book review written by Whitaker Chambers attacking Atlas Shrugged and published in National Review um, in 1957, which was the, the flagship journal of an emerging American conservative movement. And Chambers basically read her out of the movement. And it, it was more than a book review. It was an exercise in drawing a boundary line of around what is acceptable and what is not within conservative thought and conservative you know, politics. So and he I was found quite that, nervous about the writings of Rand then, was he? Well, I think so. And that's how I read it. Like, wow, if she wasn't a threat, he wouldn't have spilled so much ink. Mm. Um, and he, he was a former communist and he thought that she was essentially um, a, a sort of communist of the right in that she wasn't a religious thinker and she was opposed to religion and um, that she was promoting a very dangerous atheism. And he had just he felt like he'd just been fighting it on the left and here it's popping up on the right. So, um, yeah, that, that was kind of where it began with that review. And, you know, that, that review by Whitaker, he, he, he probably latched onto some small section or element of Rand's work and blew it out of proportion. And anybody who has maybe a negative association or wants to create a negative association with Rand focuses in on this thing about greed and atheism. Whereas they missed a point that she's trying to put across. And I'd love for you to be able to, uh, you know, divulge or bring us into the the wonderful world of Ayn Rand and her philosophy. Yeah, exactly. So I will say over time, I, I think the Chambers Review stands up in some ways because it did pinpoint a feature of Rand's personal life was that in her personal life and amongst her closest associates, she did come to demand um, 100% loyalty. And she did become a very controlling and almost dictatorial figure. And it was sort of amazing that by just reading this one book, Chambers could see that and sort of predict some of what happened with her movement. And because her movement, you know, I discovered became, you know, so bizarre, people tended to write her off and say, oh, she's just a cult figure. Oh, she's crazy. And I sort of said, okay, well, maybe to like the 50 people closest to her in the universe and certainly to the five people closest to her, that's true. But, you know, so many people were reading her book and there's so many, if she's like 
the nucleus of the circle, there's all these other outer dimensions. And I want to explore those. And I want to see what she was doing and why was she so red? And why did Chambers find her so threatening? And why, despite this review, the other thing I pretty quickly figured out is National Review, like every five years, would publish, sort of republish that same article saying, we don't like Ayn Rand. So they never could quite get the message across. And so it became, for me, a way to investigate what is the sort of grassroots appeal or what are people coming to for her? Um, and I guess I would say a lot of it has to do with this vision of capitalism she presented that rang true for many people in that, you know, it was sort of the era of the organization man, the faceless corporation, and Rand painted this very romantic portrait of capitalism as something that um, is driven by creative, um, imaginative, resourceful individuals who come up with new ideas, new products, new processes, and then they, they build um, companies and institutions on that. And that that's almost seems like obvious to us now. We kind of have this startup craze and we love entrepreneurs and there are the new rock stars and all of this. It was very unusual for her to be presenting this kind of vision in the mid 50s. Yeah, because I was going to say she has a, a very valid point, but to even conceptualize what it was like in the 1950s must have been a very diffi- a different thing altogether compared to today. So she's writing, you know, in the era of the large, large corporation when most media, film, magazines, you know, were presenting the sort of the organization man and the corporation as a, a the ultimate um, space of conformity. Like if you were if you worked for capitalists, you were sort of boring, you were conformist, you weren't that interesting. And Rand comes along with a totally different set of ideas, um, making capitalism seem exciting, daring, risk taking. Um, and then she put it in a very political context that. Um, all these great things would be happening except for the government, which is trying to tell you what to do, trying to redistribute, um, not getting what is happening. And, um, you know, that resonated for many people. But then she went even one step further. And this, I think, is both compelling and, and but ultimately not convincing for many people. She said that capitalism is fundamentally moral, the sort of individual effort the expression of individual drive and choice. That is that is a moral thing. And too much morality has been focused on collective needs. Um, and I instead am going to focus on the individual. And what makes the individual a moral person is being independent, self-reliant, and creative. And it doesn't have to do with your relationships with other people. It more has to do with your relationship to yourself. Are you acting with integrity are you following your own ideas? Are you following your own dream? So there's a there's a psychological piece to it, too, that's very powerful for people who read her work. Jennifer, I can only imagine what it was like heading into the 1960s and the 70s with the hippies, because they are more of a group of people who seem, who are communal or who like the collective outlook or looking after one another and anti-conformity or anti-establishment, perhaps even, I don't know if I could say anti-capitalist, but, you know, I'm, did they embrace her work or was there a conflict there? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a, an interesting moment when Rand gets taken up by um, the early libertarian movement, who she referred to as hippies of the right. Um, she really did not like hippies and she did not like libertarians. And there was a, a kind of countercultural movement on the right and it, it partook of many of the same you know things we think about we think of classic hippies anti-establishment um you know against the man um wanting to be free wanting to be independent um but instead of focusing on collective 
um, effort and building communities, these so-called liber- uh, hippies of the right instead saw capitalism as a very powerful force for liberation. And so it's it's really the position on capitalism that ends up separating that student right from student left. Um, and they had some real overlap when it came to the war in Vietnam uh, because, um, you know, Rand uh, opposed the draft and many other libertarians, Friedman opposed the draft. So for students on the right who were um, uh, opponents of the war or opponents of the draft, they really found something there. There was some common ground, but you really had to like capitalism to, to like Ayn Rand. And, you know, that was that kind of became a dividing line. Um, but there was that 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 sort of 60s energy and that rebellion against all that was supposed to be good and true and right. Um, Rand got caught up in that as well because she really was an iconoclast. And what is an iconoclast? Well, I mean, in terms of uh, she was she was not afraid to say um, that things should be radically different. And a lot of um, she arrayed a lot of her anger or her, her critique against Christianity. And and that really becomes another point of tension. I mean, that was what Whitaker Chambers um, struggled with. And that was what conservatives in general, you know, they were like, oh, her, her ideas about capitalism are interested. And, in, you know, she's a free marketer and a free trader. But boy, she's an atheist. Um, and she's not quiet about it. You know, she wasn't like, okay, I'm an atheist. You're a Christian. Fine. We can work together. She, no. If you um, accepted her ideas about capitalism, she thought you had to buy the whole thing including what she called the morality of selfishness, which, you know, she had constructed um, in opposition to what she thought was traditional Christian morality. So I can get here's that. someone, yeah, here's someone coming and saying, you know, thousands of years of um, religious and ethical traditions are completely wrong, need to be completely reassembled. And here's my new system that I've built and, you know, you better get on board or not. So, so in terms of being a smasher of idols, absolutely. Like her, her secular outlook on these type of issues might have could have drawn a, a very much a, a large divide, as we noticed with your reference to Whitaker. Um, but over time, even thousands of years ago, people have always worshipped gods, and there's always this religious dogma, perhaps um, the spread of Christianity eventually, or you know, if we see. Norse mythology and Roman Roman gods and Greek gods, it's always part of not all of our type of thinking, philosophical thinking, but it's always been there. But uh, I can't speak for every culture or every country either. But fundamentally, she could be, you know, I can see where the, the sense is about looking at the moral issue from a self-interested point of view. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, we haven't even touched on the word objectivism, but when I read some of this stuff on Ayn Rand there recently, it was a book I always intended again. I never get it, got it, and I will will definitely go and purchase it. Uh, but it sounded like another philosophical thinking that I've read about, which was ex- existentialism. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, and existentialism is also a very associated with that same time period. So to really understand what Rand is doing on the in the sort of macro scale, you have to know that she was born in Russia. She witnessed the Russian Revolution. Her family was dispossessed. It was a bourgeois middle class Jewish family, um, always secular. 
And um, so she identified um, ethnically as a, a Jewish woman, although in America she really that was a very um, small part of her public identity. But in Russia at the time, it was very clear um, that uh, Russian Jews lived in their own social space. So she's part of that highly educated, highly acculturated, highly secularized um, middle class, prosperous family lost her property. And then um, the family basically struggled from there on to survive. And this is like my favorite fact about Rand. She got a degree from the University of Leningrad. So she literally had a, a degree in communism, essentially. She's really tutored in the essentials of the Soviet system, propaganda, um, what it all meant. And she hated it. And she basically felt that at the root of everything that had happened, all the tragedy that had befallen her family, everything that was happening in Russian society was the idea that the collective was more important than the individual. And so she basically thought, if I can create a system where the individual is the, the, the unit of value, then something like communism will never be able to happen. And she saw Christianity as part of the problem because it tutored people in being selfless and thinking about the other person. And she really accepted uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's critique of Christianity as a slave morality. And mm. she wanted to instead to focus on the individual and, and build up the individual. So that's this very big and deep philosophical program that she then brings to the United States and translates into fiction. And, you know, she did it Except first with the... I mean, it, it really was. And, and people wonder, like, how she did all of this. Well, you know, she worked in the movie industry for quite some time and she was just methodical. I mean, she had a notebook with over 300 films that she had seen and she would take very detailed notes on the plot um, and what she thought of it. So she studied really hard at how to make an accessible um, narrative. And then she thought about how to implant it with philosophical and political ideas, which she also had been exposed to in Soviet Russia. So her whole life was really training and practice for producing the kind of work she did. And this association with Nietzsche's, um, again, there, I suppose there are some kind of crossovers when you look at the individual person or, or man, and that's the, that's the terminology they used back then as well. So when she produced her work on objectivism, mm -hmm. is this about concentrating on your own moral purpose in life and you need to be able to look and seek for things that make you ultimately happy and even if that even if that happiness or that fulfillment is achieved through your own gains through the likes of through the arts for example mm -hmm. but also by living in a an environment a very close environment that helps other people attain that type of fulfillment and that happiness. Yeah, I would say that that's about it. So, so on to the, the Nietzsche part, but for listeners um, who are interested, the early chapters in my book sort of describe the way she used Nietzsche and how important he was and then how she sort of set that aside or tried to minimize his influence in her work. And objectivism, she really didn't start talking about objectivism until the second part of her career with Atlas Shrugged. And so she had it, uh, it had a, a different component. So the ethics was selfishness. So following, you know, your own needs at first, and it was right and appropriate to concentrate on um, the, uh, she really stressed the rational mind, the thinking rational mind. Um, and she also stressed capitalism as the only political and social system that really 
let the individual flourish. So I, I think what she meant by selfishness was fairly nuanced, but it often didn't come out that way. So um, in her first book, The Fountainhead, she spent a lot of time um, describing one character, Peter Keating, who is what we would think of as a selfish person because he's he's very greedy and he's trying to get more reputation and more power and more fame, but he's basically cheating and cutting corners to do all of that. And so for her, that wasn't true selfishness because um, it wasn't authentic. And so a truly selfish person um, is content with what they produce, even if it's not popular, because they know it's true to what what they have to say or it's true to themselves. So she had this sort of nuanced um, understanding of it. And sometimes that didn't have room for the fact that some people might cut a lot of corners and cheat um, to be selfish and not really care that they weren't being authentic, right? So she placed such a value on authenticity, she almost imagined this system would work um, because she almost imagined other people would value it as the way she did. There are those misconceptions about her work regarding uh, selfishness, and she is mistaken for that using that term. And so too Adam Smith, when he referred to uh, self-interest, people mistaken what the actual meaning is. Yeah, it's. I mean, there is a long tradition of of when thinking about economics and political economy to say like, you know, hey, selfish interests or interests that seem um, related only to one person, they aggregate to something bigger. What's really different about Rand is she said, I don't care if they aggregate to something bigger or not. I just care about what they do for that person. So so she's more radical than Smith because she's saying, I, you know, if you start saying, you know, the invisible hand is good because it adds up and makes everybody better off. You know, she said, no, then your standard of value is what's good for everybody. And my standard of value is what's good for the individual. That's all I care about. She didn't want to go any further than that. So, so that is really there are very few thinkers who will do that. I mean, she really does stand alone as someone who says, you know, it, I don't, I don't care if capitalism ends up being better for the whole society. I really only care. It's okay for the individual. Looking at your book, Jennifer, goddess of the market and the, say the table of contents, there's, I'm, I'm sure you're quite choosy in terms of the, the words that were used and the uh-huh. fact, you know, like, and and they do reflect Rand's type of thinking and her work as well, as well. So obviously, you can't avoid things like Russia, but then there's the real root of evil, um, radicals for capitalism, big mm-hmm. sisters watching you, and then something like love is exception making, um, and a lot of these seem very specific or very much intriguing as well to actually go into and explore what you're writing about here and, you know, those parts of Rand's life in Russia and in America. Yeah, I mean, most of those chapter titles are pulled from things that she said or, you know, so the big sister is watching you is the chamber's critique. And then the the book is a, a biography, um, not in the traditional sense, but it's an intellectual biography. So I do tell the story of her life, but I'm really focused on her ideas and specifically how her ideas intersected with the American right. So how they were taken up by conservatives, libertarians, um, how politicians like Goldwater uh, found her fascinating, how people like William F. Buckley hated her. Um, And then the latter part of the book starts to explore this world she created. So when Atlas Shrugged came out, um, she thought this was her, the greatest thing she'd ever done. And it got terrible, terrible reviews and she was devastated. She wanted critical acclaim. She didn't get it. 
but it sold a lot of copies and people started writing her letters and she eventually picked herself up and said, well, I'm going to start teaching people about my philosophy. My philosophy is objectivism. She had it all you know, planned out into these different parts and she started giving lectures. And over time, this really grew into um, a quite sizable organization headquartered in New York, also had classes in Los Angeles, other cities. And the way it worked is if you wanted to um, be an objectivist, start an objectivist circle in your hometown, you wrote into New York and you were sent cassette tapes. So this is obviously before the era of podcasting. And you would everyone would come to a room and they would play a cassette tape of Ayn Rand giving a lecture. Now, pretty soon she had a, a bunch of other people doing lectures, too. And one of the people who was in her circle who did lectures um, and spent a lot of time with her was the um, future chair of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan. Mm. And Alan Greenspan met her in New York and was just wowed by her ideas. And he said, you know, I was a, a sort of technical economist, you know, focused on, you know, adding up what was, you know, happening in different industries and, and forecasting. He's an economic forecaster. And he had never really thought, he said, about the big picture. And so Rand was his introduction to what does this all mean in terms of a social and political and ethical system? And he was just enraptured. I mean, he um, was a friend of hers for a long time when he was inaugurated or when he was um, sworn in for the Council of Economic Advisors um, in Gerald Ford's presidency, he invited his mother and Ayn Rand to the ceremony. Um, so that was a deep, deep and durable friendship um, that they formed at that time. And so I talk a, a lot about that later part of her life. And then there's also some sort of scandalous um, uh, love affair piece that, that that title is talking about as well. Well, everybody loves a scandal. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something well, that I have to wait and see and buy the book. You'll have to read the book for the whole thing. But yeah. I'll tell you that um, uh, the basic outlines is that she... Well, she was married know, to Frank O'Connor, wasn't, wasn't she? So her husband was Frank O'Connor, who was a lovely man and very much um, sort of in the shadows of her life. And as soon as the book came out, she started getting fan mail and occasionally she would correspond with these fans. And one of them she became very close to, Nathaniel Brandon. And she became very close to Nathaniel Brandon and his wife, Barbara Brandon. And um, they eventually all ended up moving to New York while she was finishing the novel. And they sort of got closer and closer. One thing led to another. And she and Nathaniel Brandon became lovers in an arrangement that was known to and agreed to by their respective spouses. That sounds ironic, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> Commun I mean, it really, communal, <laughs> a hippie it, kind it, of type. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it's fairly, um, it's not unknown in radical intellectual circles at the turn of the century. Um, and she would have been aware of that, you know, that in sort of forward thinking, free thinking, radical circles, you know, unusual marital arrangements kind of were part and parcel of it. And how she understood it was is the triumph of rationality. Um, you know, we are rational people and I am a rationally gifted um, novelist and this young man has so much potential. Like, of course, we would want to be lovers. And of course, our spouses know this and can agree to this. And so, you know, it's all going to be on the up and up. But it, but it wasn't exactly on the up and up because only four people knew about it. Um, and so as time went on, the situation got more and more complicated and, you know, the listener can imagine that this would not come to a, a good end and it did not come to a good end. Um, so, so I cover that as well insofar as it, you know, is, is part of how she became known as a public figure and part of how, um, you know, how she, it, it really, um, it, it affected, 
how she got her message out, in part because Nathaniel Brandon was her best-known spokesperson for many years. I'm very articulate, I, I, I take it, given his background. Yeah, I mean, he um, he became sort of the public face of objectivism. She was also, you know, out there a lot. And he was he was kind of the organizer and the person who really grew it. Um, and then when their relationship ended, that 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 organized objectivism sort of fizzled out. But in the meantime, so I mentioned um, Senator Barry Goldwater. He um, ran for the Republican. Uh, 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 he was a Republican candidate for president in 1964. He lost in a landslide. But he's now understood to have been the sort of first conservative of the 20th century conservative movement, you know, a a figure who talked about, um, you know, fighting communism, um, free markets and, you know, keeping up uh, traditional values and law and order. So he was he was very much for all three of them. But he really was known as an anti-government free market thinker. And Rand adored him. And she basically said to her readers you know, this is this is your politician. This is whom you should support. Now, over time, she kind of became a little more lukewarm to him. But there's a real combination um, between these two groups, supporters of Goldwater, people who read Ayn Rand, they very much overlap. And then a few years down the road, that would grow into the libertarian movement um, in the United States. And so when when Rand when Rand's objectivism sort of petered out in 1968, um, it actually rather sort of imploded. Um and she shuttered all her objectivist organizations. Um, a lot of those people went on into libertarianism, and libertarianism became this wing within the conservative movement, um, you know, allied with the Republican Party, and has had very um, important consequences ever since. And a lot of that, if you talk to um, libertarians in that movement, you know, there was a book, one of them wrote a memoir, and the title says it all. It usually begins with Ayn Rand. You know, like you read Ayn Rand, and nothing is ever the same. Earlier on, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned libertarianism, and I don't think she liked that type of political approach or that type of, if you want to call it, philosophical approach. But I had always that association with libertarianism and mm-hmm. Ayn Rand, and you just confirmed it there that is that um link between the two and maybe the adoption. And like o- over time, over the decades, it can be a very short period of time. We see cultures changing. You know, mm-hmm. again, the 1960s hippie movement that uh, fizzled out and with, with cult- different cultural shifts or changes and perceptions and maybe whatever exogenous variables could change perceptions of things regarding capitalism. This type of objectivism could end up kind of taking on its own type of maturity in terms of how it fits into the type of culture that we are living in today. Yeah, I mean, you know, so Rand disliked libertarians because they didn't buy her whole philosophical system, you know, and and many libertarians were libertines, right? You know, drugs, free sex, do whatever you want. And although she thought the government should not legislate any of that, you know, the government should not criminalize drugs, it should not criminalize homosexuality, that didn't mean she thought any of those were okay. It just was the government shouldn't be telling you what to do. You should be free to make these mistakes on your own. And so... um you know, she thought that you needed that rational framework and that commitment to rationality and the commitment to the principles of objectivism in order to live a good life. And libertarians, you know, loved her work, but they weren't going to go all the way with her. So the fact that she then that objectivism ended up fading away, I think, gave people more ability to say, I'm going to take some of Ayn Rand. You know, I'm going to take this vision of capitalism and what it could be. 
I'm going to take this idea of, you know, creative, you know, uh, the way that creativity is in, in incredibly linked to economic production. I'm going to take all that. Um, I'm going to take the critique of government and liberalism. I'm not going to take the other stuff. I don't need it, you know, and there's no more Rand around to tell you that. Yeah. And so the other thing I think, just going back to the kind of the hippies, the 60s, you know, if you were a radical, uh, you know, the radical hippies, radical on the left, many of these people did, you know, end up making their way into, you know, mainstream institutions of society. Not all, but, you know, many, many found their way after a while. Yeah. But it was still a hard path. If you were an objectivist or libertarian, you always thought it was okay to make a lot of money. Like you always thought it was okay to be successful. You never rejected that. You never had that rejection of materialism or worldly success. So if you decided to kind of become more moderate and, you know, cut your long hair and kind of mainstream back in, you didn't feel like you were betraying any of your principles. You were still consistent. And so, you know, it's very easy for um, fans of Rand to funnel into finance or tech or, um, you know, Re Republican Party organizing without feeling like they left any of their youthful idealism behind, but rather that they were, you know, carrying that forward. I just wonder if Rand's book was banned in Ireland back in the 50s and 60s or even the 40s, you know, because, you know, was, that, yeah. Go, I don't know, actually. That would be a great question. So when the Fountainhead movie came out, mm. it, so the book came out in 43 and the movie, I think, was 47. And she had the biggest trouble with the um, – so the Catholic Church was essentially de facto movie censors in the United States. Um, and it was they, the same in Ireland. Yeah. And they and the, the actually, here's the interesting thing. What they really objected to, there was like a racy sex scene. They didn't really care that much about it. They hated this speech where Howard Rourke says, like, it's all about the individual. The individual is the only thing that matters. And they really didn't like that because it was, you know, it was a contradicting Catholic social, Catholic social doctrine. And they, there was a big wrangle over that, you know. Rand got in a big fight with Warner Brothers and they were trying to appease the censors. So um, I wonder if it was I wonder if it was screened in, in Ireland or if the books were. I, I don't actually know that. It would be a great uh, factoid to find out. Yeah, because e even some of the teachings in church when you'd be growing up, it's like, about materialism is almost an evil or you almost feel guilty if you even think of trying to be an entrepreneur, even though that word might not have existed a couple of decades mm -hmm. back. But um, I would have loved to have been exposed to Rand uh, earlier on and be able to think, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's it's all good. <laughs> Yeah. And that I mean, that is what she did for many young people in the 60s. It was suddenly like, wait a second, I'm reading this book and it's telling me something I've never heard before and that it's OK to be selfish. It's OK to pursue my goals. It's OK to want to be wealthy. One thing I found is that she's tremendously popular in India and she turns out to be like every Bollywood star's favorite novelist. Cool. And so I did some interviews to kind of tease this out. And most people said something along the lines of, you know, India is a very traditional, very family focused society. Everybody's always told you have to think about your family and, you know, worry about what everyone else that, you know, it's very it's it's very collective. And when you read Ayn Rand and she's all about the individual, it kind of blows your mind, mm -hmm. you know. And so you have this like five to ten year period where, you, you know, you're all about Ayn Rand and the individual. And then, you know, eventually most people end up getting married and, you know, buying into that whole collectivist system. But at least for that period of time, she shows them a different way of thinking or a different way of being. Jennifer, you were the first independent person to be given access to the archives for Rand's writings. Mm -hmm. Over your research on this book, was there anything that you found quite fascinating 
kind of one or two pieces of information that maybe no one was really aware of or that you personally weren't aware of, but it was it was like a nugget, a golden nugget. Yeah, I mean, so so this interesting story about her archives, which I've um, blogged more about and I, I put up, um, it's on my website if readers are interested, but after objectivism broke down, that Rand's literary estate was controlled by one faction and they had been, they had kept all her material, it was an invaluable archive, um, yet they had not really let people use it. And so it just was a happy coincidence that when I was starting this project, they were trying to open up the archive and they turned out to be receptive to have a scholar doing a work on Rand. There are so many things I found. I think one of the things that was the most valuable were the fan letters that came in to her. And that really helped me, you know, she hadn't been respected in academia. And, you know, people sometimes were like, you're writing a book on Ayn Rand. Like, why would you do that? You know, there's a sort of a level of disrespect about her that um, I could imbibe from my, my academic setting. And then I would see these letters and people would be saying, you know, I was in a bad marriage and like I read The Fountainhead and like now I'm getting divorced or I'm changing my career or, you know, these these very powerful letters about how she was um, a positive force in their life. And so I, that would always help me sort of come back to that and remember that I wanted to tell the story of those people and why they found her of value. So that kind of thing. And then the depth to which she was involved in politics and trying to make a difference politically. It started in the middle of writing The Fountainhead. And then I found this fascinating correspondence with conservatives in the 1940s. And the way that she really thought of her work as political was also, I think, not really appreciated. Um, And then, you know, in the archive, there were some other just sort of interpersonal things and some, you know, really moving also testimonies about how if her books had been very positive forces for people, objectivism itself could be a very damaging. And I found some material on that too. I didn't end up using all of that material because it was deeply personal, uh, you know, about other people. But I think just kind of living in her world for a bit, you know, was, was really interesting. And that's what you get when you, when you sort of immerse yourself in the archives. And, I mean, I'm tremendously grateful I had that opportunity. And I think I've been able to show that, you know, Rand really was a presence in 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 many people's lives and a force in in American history. Would you feel a deeper connection with Rand today now as a result of that experience? You know, I mean, I have um I don't or do really you have think, a criticism or something? Is yeah, I mean like what do I think about her as a person? I mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of all in the book in that um she sort of lived and died by her own ideas and they enabled like her to accomplish a huge amount. But by the end of her life, she was a very lonely person and she had alienated most of the people that she treasured the most. And oh. so um, that to me is just kind of the lesson is there in in the story. And I've, you know, sometimes felt a sort of affection for her, sometimes a frustration with her, sometimes a, a like, are you kidding me? Um, you know, the sort of whole range of, of reactions one might have. But I just feel like my job as an author and a scholar is to kind of invite people in to to this author and the universe, mental universe she created and and give people space to make their own um, judgment of it rather than I have, you know, I have my own judgments that, that are woven subtly into the book, but I'm not going to bang people on the head and say, like, this is how you should think of Ayn Rand and this is how you should understand her because I think everyone experiences it slightly differently. If you could speak to her today, would there be anything that you'd like to ask her to join certain dots that were kind of a missing or a void in the, right, the research that you were doing, undertaking for her? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Kind of what, what would I want to say um, to Ayn Rand? Or what would you like to advise her if you could look looking back on it, you know? Well, I mean, one thing that just occurred to me the other day is just thinking about her. Is she had um, she was separated from her family when she, she left Russia and she came to the United States at, you know, at a very young age in 20s. And then um, she assumed her family had died in the um, siege um, Leningrad or, or Stalingrad because of um, uh, in the war. She just she knew her parents had died. She thought everyone had died. And then at a certain point, um, the United States government sent a traveling exhibition, you know, to Russia, this kind of Cold War, build a bridge type of thing. And they included pictures of famous authors and they included a picture of Ayn Rand. She had changed her name, but it was a picture of her. And in Moscow, her sister saw this and goes, oh, my God, this is my sister. And so she was able at the end of her life to reunite with her sister and, and her sister came over from Russia and they met. And unfortunately, they got along for a couple of days and then they, they got in a lot of fights and then they, they, they ended up leaving and her sister went back to Russia. And so, you know, I, I think that's just such a poignant story yeah. that that they couldn't set aside their differences. It turned out her sister was just like her, um, but actually liked the Soviet system. So the two of them just argued implacably. And um, I guess I'd, I'd want to know, I'd be curious if she would have any regrets or I, I don't think she would. She's not that kind of self-reflective person, but that episode seems to me like, you know, she, she had a, a chance at connection in the last, you know, de- decades, five years of her life and, and she didn't, she didn't make it happen. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in, in as a big thing to talk to someone about, but I, that did come back into my mind recently. Can I ask you one more question, Jennifer? That's okay before we wrap up or are you, Sure. Yeah. A few more is good. Yeah. Like, and um, I was going to ask you about a recommended book and obviously you're, I, I think, I don't want to say obviously, but it was going to be at the shrugged or, um, one of the, uh, some of our other writings. And I'd also love to recommend your own as well. And I put all the links on the website, economicrockstar.com forward slash Jennifer Burns. But Jennifer, if, um, given the writing that you put into this and also your forthcoming book on Milton Friedman, and if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind talking uh, briefly about this, but would you have any writing advice or tips for any, any scholar or anybody who's interested in writing and finding it very difficult? Is there one or two that you would like to part us with in terms of the experience you've undertaken and the lessons you've learned? Yeah, sure thing. Well, let me say first, um, on the question of Rand books to read, um, your listeners might think about looking at We the Living, which is Rand's first novel set in Soviet Russia. Um, It has many of the elements of uh, Randian melodrama. It doesn't have the full philosophy, but it has some really nice writing on, um, you know, what what Russia was like at at that moment in time. So I think it's a a very interesting piece. Um, for me, in terms of my own writing, it's about uh, an advice and one of my doctoral advisors gave me was be happy with incrementalism. And so I basically write every day and I, I have a schedule. I'm very strict about it and I don't try to force it. I don't try to push it. I just try to do a little bit every day. And I find if I've if I've written every day for a month, I've done this incredible amount of work. Um, so I think consistency is really part of it. Um and then, you know, you have to find uh, a way to connect into why you're writing and to really sort of feed that um, inner goal. So having questions or problems that are that are really intriguing to you, because as a writer, you have this unstructured time to write and you're not going to write unless you're really passionate about it. You'll end up on email or on the phone or something. And so part of my writing practice is that I'm, I don't check my email. I don't check 
the internet for certain times until I've done the writing. And so for me, it works in the morning. I know people have different um, ways they do it. And I do it by time, not by output, because I find um, some the same amount of time I can, you know, write 10 pages or write one paragraph. And those might actually be equivalent in their importance to the finished work. I've had a recent guest actually on the podcast, Allison, uh, Francois Allison, and he we spoke about Russian economic history. And uh-huh. Some of the books that he recommended, and it would have been around the time that um, Rand would have been in Russia. I don't uh-huh. know if, he, if if you got a sense of any of her influences, whether they were kind of like more fiction or act, uh, uh, factual. But some of the books he re- um, recommended was Red Star, the first Bolshevik utopia, and Journey of My Brother Alexei to the Land of Peasant Utopia. And um, would would you be aware of of those t- books that? Rand could have used because they were in, published in the 1920s. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that she was very influenced by a sort of Russian radical tradition. Russian, she read Dostoevsky, she read Nietzsche, she she read some Russians, but she was also very attuned to sort of continental Europe world. Um, her understanding of economics, you know, I don't. I, I think some of it was was a basic, you know, watching a business in operation was part of it. Um, and then it was, she basically, everything the Soviets said, she just reversed, you know, and assumed that that was, um, that was the, the, uh, the way to do it. I would say she was very, um, you know, very much committed to free markets, no regulation. She really thought that she wouldn't use the term price system. Um, but she thought that, um, individuals contracting freely could work it out. She was a supporter of the gold standard. So she didn't, she didn't follow sort of modern uh, macroeconomics. She was essentially a Miesian, uh, an Austrian. She followed Ludwig von Mises. When she started reading Mises, she was like, this is it. So in terms of who she would refer people to, she would say, read Ludwig von Mises. And they actually knew each other, and they had kind of an up-and-down, contentious relationship. But they both respect. (laughs) Of course. They were both very prickly. They respected each other enormously. So she would really be the Austrian, right, with the entrepreneur as the focus, and and with a belief that a you know commodity gold standard would basically solve your macroeconomic problems. I would love to keep on going with you, Jennifer, but uh, it'll be great to catch up again sometime in the near future. But uh, before we move on, could we maybe talk briefly about your forthcoming book on Milton Friedman? Yes, I would love to. Oh, great. Well, it's not a book yet. It's still in manuscript, so I don't have a publication date, but I will let you know when I do. And um, I'm essentially uh, writing an intellectual biography of Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist. And I started it thinking that it would be similar in approach to my book on Rand. And in some ways it is. It's a, you know focused on his career, his ideas, um, more so than his personal life, although the two are very interconnected as I've come to see. And when I started, I was really interested in him as a public figure, as a conservative pundit, a conservative icon, you know, out there talking about capitalism and free markets, much much the way Rand had. And I thought of Rand as more the populist, um, popular voice of um, libertarianism or free market ideas, and and Friedman as the more elite academic voice. And so I thought that putting them together would be really interesting. And that's all been true, but. I had to begin with Friedman as an economist, and that really has been the most fascinating part, is learning about the history of economics and how 
over the course of this study, economics went from a, a fairly obscure discipline to um, being almost the arbiters of national purpose and, and national policy to, again, being um, viewed somewhat suspiciously, I think, in our current era for their their great power. And at the same time, economics itself as a discipline completely transformed from in the in the late 20s and early 30s when Friedman was an undergraduate, the focus was very much on institutional economics. And then over the course of his career, um, mathematics became ever more important. And it, by mid-career, you know, the journals were filling with equations and very complicated math and, um, you know, all became tied up in the computing revolution and many different things. And so uh, a lot of what I, the research and the writing I've done so far has just been describing how Friedman fit into that picture and how he navigated those changes. And, you know, that era, those those eras in economics are defined by John Maynard Keynes and then Milton Friedman. You can almost see the end of one and the beginning of another. And I, I can't wait for this book to be published, Jennifer, and to speak to you again. And, and we could do a podcast episode on Milton Friedman and his work. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. And I think that what I'm... Um, you know, what I've learned so far is that it, it really was in many ways, um, you know, Friedman knew his ideas could be fit together into a rival system to that of Keynes. And he did that very purposively. And, and he worked with others. Part of the story is the way he collaborated with many different women who were often lost to history. And I'm, I'm trying to bring them back um, into the story. And then also that um, the other thing that was so fascinating about that turn to mathematics is that Friedman um, really could have been at the forefront of that movement, um, given his training as a statistician and his his quantitative skills. And he very deliberately decided to practice a different type of economics, um, uh, you know, a more traditional type of economics, really a, a political economics. So talking about that story has been has been really interesting, and learning about that has been very surprising. How he made choices that um, were very distinctive, and I think in part led to him being able to communicate to a wider audience and capture a wider audience and then, you know, eventually become a, a real alternative to the Keynesian paradigm. And I can't wait to hear about Rose Friedman's own perception or her own, her own take on economics and her own development of the theories along with Milton too. Yeah, absolutely. She was very much, um, you know, a, a co-author and a collaborator in, in many key parts of his career. And then there's also Anna Schwartz and a host of other women whose names aren't familiar, but I think um, will be once uh, once you finish reading my book. Jennifer, I really appreciate it taking time out and for talking to you about Ayn Rand and her work and also the, the book that you've written. And if anybody wants to find out more, they can visit, you on, visit your website, jenniferburns.org or go to economicrockstar.com forward slash Jennifer Burns. And I only realized they're um, do, just doing some background work on for, in preparation for this episode that you have a podcast too, a United States history podcast. So if anybody is interested in listening to you giving your lectures on a wide, a very, you know, talking almost 20th century history in terms of the U.S. economy, Check out that podcast, and you were probably one of the first to have a podcast. 
Yeah, I was a I was a podcasting pioneer back in I think it was 2005 or 2006 that my first podcast went up. And so, you know, the lectures that time has passed since then, but most of the history is still the same. So yes. you can kind of go inside my classroom first at University of California Berkeley, and then I do have some material up from when I was a professor at the University of Virginia. And I have not yet podcasted my Stanford classes, but I can't imagine that won't happen uh, fairly soon. So, yeah, I, I do have a, an iTunes channel that uh, people can find. And I tend to centralize everything on that website. So if I'm up to anything new, I, I put a notice up there. So that's a good one. And I do um, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm not a, a regular tweeter, but I do pop on now and again. And I mostly share um, the type of work and research that I'm doing. Great. So that's a good way to stay connected. Yeah, definitely. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You are an economic rock star, and I look forward to talking to you again uh, soon. Thank you. I'm honored by that designation. All right. Take care, Frank. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the Economic Rockstar website. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.